Hey guys, my name is Crystal Kenny, and I'm in love with creating. All things artistic and imagination involved. I'm an American girl who chased her creative dreams all the way to Paris, France, making a living using photography. This podcast takes you inside the stories of all the artsy folks I've met along the way and gives you that extra push to discover your creative gifts. The desire to create is deeply inside each and every one of us, and I give you the tools and inspiration to find a new way of living a more creative life. This is La Vie Creative, the podcast. Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. If you want more bonus material and to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash la vie creative. And also don't forget to check out Amazon where you can pick up my new book, Paris, A Life Less Ordinary. In the book, I talk about my creative adventures in Paris, from starting my business to being homeless, hello, starving artist, (laughs) to how I met all these wonderful creative people. Don't forget to check it out on Amazon. And also thank you so much once more for listening and for your support. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Paris History avec Hemingway. I'm here with Claudine. And today we are talking about George Sand. And if you're like me, you've heard her name a lot, but maybe you don't know much about her. And Claudine is about to open our worlds with information, aren't you, Claudine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's getting busted wide open. Yeah, wide open. Uh, George Sand is, is a, a name a lot of people know, but you um, might just know, most people just know that she was a woman that um, sounded like she had a man's name and she dressed like a man, but there was a lot more to it than that, of course. So, of course. Uh, so George Sand was, um, act, She was when she was born, She her mother, um, and this is a long one, Antoinette Sophie Victoire Delabord. And she actually came from a very um, poor family. And from a very early age, she was a prostitute. And oh, if no, you are playing sure. the La Vie Creative <laughs> bingo, <laughs> you could check the prostitute box. Um, <laughs> she, she came from a very um, poor family. Her father was Maurice Francois Dupin. And he didn't marry her until four weeks before she gave birth. And so... She, he, um, his family, he didn't come from a very, um, he came from a pretty wealthy family and they were actually the descendants of the King of Poland and very wealthy. So of course he probably, you know, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised that he married her considering the situation. Cause most of the stories we see that doesn't usually happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, that's surprising. Yeah. George was born, um, Almatine Lucille Aurore Dupin. And she was basically known as Aurora um, the whole time she was growing up. And she was raised by her grandmother and who um, had a chateau in Nouhan in the center of France. And her father and um, grand- grandmother also descended um, from the Marshal General of France. So her grandmother came from a very long line as well. So I'm sure she was pretty happy when her daughter decided to be a prostitute. <laughs> 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 so she didn't have much of a relationship with her father and she very rarely saw her mother and her grand her grandmother basically 
took care of her, gave, she was, you know, her completely mother, you know, motherly image to her. Um, But she thought something was always missing. And so she, she knew her mother wanted her, but her mom never had the money or, you know, the lifestyle to really take care of her. So as she got older, she would actually go to Paris and visit her mother. Um, But it was a very stark contrast to living in a chateau with her grandmother. (laughs) And her grandmother kind of was very careful about how much time she'd actually spend with her with her mother because she was kind of worried about, you know, her priority priorities weren't really, you know, ever her daughter, of course. So she was a little bit worried about that. Um, But when her she started to get um, a little rebellious and when that happened, um, she was a little too hard to handle for grandma. So grandma sent her, of course, to the convent. (laughs) That's where they all go. Bingo again. Yep. Bingo. So um, at 16, her grandmother declared um, that she needed to, you know, that they were going to find a husband for her. And there was quite a long list of candidates and they had, you know, there was quite a few men that wanted to marry her because, you know, she did come from, you know, her grandmother was pretty wealthy. But then there was finally Francois Casimir de Levant, who ended up actually marrying her. They got married on September 17th, 1822. She was 16 and he was 42. You, I know these these ones are always just ugh. so <laughs> her grandmother has set up a dowry for her to put in place, but it also had a clause in there to protect her inheritance. So it wasn't just a complete, you know, usually back then you basically, you gave everything over to your husband, no matter what it was. And she, Mm -hmm. her grandmother was pretty smart and put this clause in there that there was kind of a protection. So the two of them had two kids. They had a son in 1823, Maurice, and a daughter, Solange, in 1828. But they had a very, very unhappy marriage. They were not, you know, I I mean, also like that age gap. I mean, that's just how can it be? It's kind of strange. Yeah, exactly. You don't have much in common. (laughs) So and he was a lawyer for the royal court, but he was um, always looking for a way to step up in society. And so he he really got that by marrying Aurora. And after the birth of um, their first son, she um it got a little bit worse and he would be seen yelling and hitting her in public and mm. carrying on a scene and he would leave for long periods of time and he would go and find um you know he'd go and he'd sleep with a bunch of people and have all sorts of mistresses and be drunk and spending all his all of her money and so finally um she ended up finding a lawyer Orian Dussaz, and he was also the defender of Louis the Sixteenth, and so they they had a relationship that put the kind of has put a question into maybe who the father was of her daughter. Mm. So it could you know a little scandal there. So, but Francois, um, he would kept getting worse. He was sleeping with the household staff. Now he was drunk all the time. You know, just out out, out all the time in Paris. He wouldn't be back for long stretches of time, which was probably on one hand, you know, a good thing. Um, but in 1831, she kind of got really tired of it, and so she left him. And in 1835, she was able to legally separate from him. And back then, that was not an easy task. I was going to say, that's pretty amazing, I guess, because she had money and was sleeping with her lawyer. So that was helpful. Yeah, yeah that helps. So in Paris, when she went to Paris at, at that point, she left uh, Noir where they had the chateau, you know, where her grandmother was. She left to go to Paris and she met a group of um, writers and it was um, from the whole romantic movement at the time. And it, and it included a man named Jules Sandeau. 
And the two began an affair and they would write articles together for Le Figaro, but they would write under the name Jay Sant because hmm. as a woman, you couldn't, you couldn't do that at the time. You couldn't, she couldn't write an article um, under her name. And so, but they wrote these articles together. So the same year she wrote um, one of her still most popular books called Indiana, and she wanted to use their pen name. She wanted to have it published under Jay Sand, but he didn't want to do that or have anything to do with it because he didn't have anything to do with the book. He didn't write it, the book. So that's the moment that George Sand was born. Oh, I love that. I never knew that. Yeah. So that's how why she changed her name. Um and at the time, in uh, women were not allowed to wear men's clothing. And then they were considered you were a transvestite if you wore pants. So <laughs> you actually had to have a special permit. You had to actually get a permit from the prefecture that says that you had a uh, medical or some other reason that you to wear pants. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Um, but when she left her husband and her estate, most of her money was tied up. She couldn't instantly just get at her money. So she started to wear men's clothes because they were a lot cheaper and they were a lot more comfortable. So a lot of people think, you know, she was making this big statement by dressing, you know, as a man all the time. But really, it was just for comfort and because it was cheap. Makes sense. Yeah. But she never bothered getting the permit. You know, she's a rebel. And so she <laughs> was dressing in men's clothing and she was going into places most women couldn't couldn't do. So a lot of the times, you know, they wouldn't really, you know, they'd be different, um, different theaters and different restaurants that a woman wasn't allowed to go into. But now as just as a man, she could and nobody really looked twice. Which was kind of nice. I just can't imagine living in a time where yoga pants didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> now, I would like to put a ban on those outside it just every day. <laughs> they are needed. <laughs> the whole reason, like, I love that America had to create a term called athleisure just to make it feel a little bit better. <laughs> I just love all these people wearing workout clothes that obviously are not working out. I know. That's the thing. It's like, wear when you work out, but they shouldn't be worn to like, I don't know. My grandmother was very specific, you know. I definitely got a lot of things from my grandmother and that was one of them. You kind of, you wouldn't wear anything like that outside the house, <laughs> but inside the house. But so she Fine. found her voice pretty early and um, she was actually really into politics and she was against the lack of equality women had, um, especially um, the working class women. So as a child, she discovered um, writing the writings of Rousseau and Chateaubriand and Shakespeare and Aristotle. And because her grandmother, you know, showed her all these things for at a time when that wasn't really what, you know, young girls should be reading. And so she kind of it filled her with all of these, you know, all these lofty ideas and, you know, grand, grand illusions of things that she wanted to share in her writing. And so she she kind of in a lot, in a lot of her writing, she would talk about sex, sexuality, cross class relationships, you know, like when the upper class is dating, you know, the the stable boy <laughs> or whatever those straight romance novels are. So she was really into kind of sharing more of those things. Um, she wrote that she um, knew she had um, another side and criticized women and she actually she was she thought that women should actually be responsible for their own happiness and their choices that they made. 
And I think a lot of that came because of how she was raised in her childhood, looking at her, the difference between her mother and her grandmother. Yeah, her grandmother sounded cool. Yeah, her grandma sounds pretty cool. So she pro- she wrote, um, she would write very, very quickly and she'd have them published. And so at the time, you know, Balzac did the same thing, but Balzac was looked at as a genius because he wrote so quickly and he published these books and, you know, this huge, you know, thirst that people had for his stuff. But because she was a woman, they looked down on that because that wasn't what a woman is supposed to be doing. So she obviously wasn't, you know, taking care of her home or her husband. Um, and so she was actually looked down on doing the same thing that Balzac was doing. But, I mean, of course, because she was a woman. Yes, exactly. But she would write 70, more, more than 70 novels and 50 volumes of stories um, that were also and also did some pieces for the stage. Oh my God, she wrote a lot. She wrote a lot. Yeah. And so in 1830, she was just 27 years old and she was one of the most popular authors in all of Europe. And they knew she was a woman or they thought it was a man? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think that they probably, um, I think they probably thought she was a man, but I think they did think it was a woman. She never really, she never went under an illusion of, you know, pretending to be a man in that way, except for, of course, by the way she dressed and stuff. Um, You know, it's not like Colette and Willie who, you know, mm-hmm. he, he took what she did and pre- pretended it was his. Um, yeah. But her book, Indiana, it overtook um, uh, Hugo's Notre Dame du Paris on the bestseller list. Whoa, he must not have been happy about that. Well, they were actually really close friends and they lasted, it lasted for decades and they would write these letters to each other all the time, but they never actually met in person. Well, that's so cool. Yeah, so they were like pen pals for a- ages. That's adorable. Um, in the revolution of 1830, the three glorious days, um, she was pushed into the public side of politics and became um, the minister of propaganda. And in 1848, during the revolution, she published her own newspaper and served at, um, on the provisional government. And during Napoleon III's coup d'etat in 1851, she assisted um, by helping draw up pardons and helping friends that had been arrested. I love it. I love that she was able to do all this as a woman at that time. I know she was just kind of into everything. So in 1836, when she had finally had enough of her husband spending all of her money, she filed for divorce and she found lawyer um, Louis Michel. And he um, also became, guess what? Her lover. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pattern. In April 1835, but he was able to successfully fight Francois and won the judgment against him. And she was officially given a divorce on February 16th, 1836, which it, you know, it was huge back then. That took forever. Yeah. And so they didn't, I mean, he was definitely not, Francois was definitely not happy about anything. Um, but Louis Michel was supposed to move into, was supposed to move to Paris and into her apartment with her, but he was also married at the time and his, um, wife's and was his, uh, she was very angry, of course, about all of this. And uh, George Sand could be very um, unpredictable at times. So he had to choose the lesser of two evils. And he ended up breaking it off with um, George Sand because she he thought, you know, his wife could be worse. <laughs> That's so funny. He was more terrified of his wife. <laughs> he was more terrified of his wife. Uh, but, you know, she, you know, she definitely... 
um, had quite a few um, different love interests in 1833 after um, Jules Sando. She met actress Marie Dorval, and it was a very fast and intense relationship that basically shocked all of Paris because they were women and they were also extremely well known. They were very famous. And so when word spread around Paris, the two of them were in an, a relationship. It did not go so well. And um, it only lasted it only lasted a few months because it just became too big of a thing. And it was kind of threatening Marie's. Um, whole career on the stage. And, and it was, I know. And then <laughs> after that, she had another one. She met Alfred du Musette, who was a poet and novelist who moved into her K. Malaké um, apartment, and which is right by the uh, Alliance Francaise, my favorite. And he, but he suffered these like extreme, crazy hallucinations, hallucinations. <laughs> <laughs> And on a trip to Venice, it got so bad that he basically took, basically like went into this like outer body experience where it was like he was a whole nother person unaware of anything going on. And so, wow. Yeah. So she called a doctor named Pietro Pagilio, who we should, we should have had uh, Giuseppe on this, who at the same (laughs) time, of course, fell in love with her. <laughs> she just can't help herself. I know she's quite lovable. So when um, Musette was aware of that, basically they were having this relationship. He left and went back to France, and he left and um, San and um, Pietro in Venice. And so then she decided to return to Paris, and she brought Pietro with her. And when Musette um, begged for another chance, which she refused, he goes to Germany. He's just completely beside himself. But then in October, October 1834, he comes back again and their affair starts again. And then Pietro at this time decides to go back to Italy. So she had quite, there was a lot of drama, I guess, you know, maybe she, she had to have that for her, for her novels too. So it makes for better writing. Yeah. So a month later they break up again, this time leaving her completely heartbroken and thinking of killing herself. But in the same year, she ended up meeting um, Eugène Delacroix, and he painted her looking very sad and heartbroken. And I'll put the uh, picture of the painting that you could find. Um, usually it's in the Louvre, sometimes in the uh, Musée de la Vie Romantique. And it's very, very sad looking. And so he painted it and um, she ended up sending it to Musette. And so when he saw it, he thought, oh, this is, is horrible. And he came back to see her. And of course, again, they started up again, but then it ended quickly yet again. <laughs> yet again. Yet again. <laughs> I saw that before they locked us in our houses again. It's above the fireplace in the Musée de la Romantique. Yeah, yeah. It's such, oh, I love that. I love that museum. But the one, the one relationship she's pretty much known for of all others, if you ever read a short biography about her, you know, she was an author dressed in men's clothes was involved with Frederick um, Chopin. And in 1838, mm-hmm. she met Chopin and their relationship began in Paris. And the two traveled um, all over the place. They went to Mallorca for the winter, but Chopin was in really, really bad health. And so the damp winter down there really wasn't helping him. And so 
he they had a really difficult relationships with ups and downs and frequent separations, which I think was kind of uh, I think we <laughs> see a pattern for her here. Um, but they had had huge separations. Her son absolutely hated him, but her daughter loved him. And so it ended up dro- basically pulling um, George Sand and her daughter Solange apart because Solange was, you know, on, on Chopin's side and, you know, why, how could you do this to him, mom? Because they kept breaking up. Um, in 1842, the two of them ended up moving into a house um, in La Square d'Orléans and ended up really close to uh, Saint-Georges. And, but he was in really bad health. And so for most of the time, she basically kind of served more as his, you know, nurse than in a relationship. Um, mm. but then they, they of course broke up, but then they had a few times when they got back together, <laughs> <laughs> but she finally in 1849 kind of met her, uh, perfect match. She was at her show t- chateau in, uh, Nohant, which is after, you know, is long after her grandmother's passed away and her son Maurice introduced her to a, na- a man named Alexander, uh, Monceau, and he was 12 years younger than her. Um, and his family was a much lower class, but she didn't care. And he he finally was the one that gave her like the love and friendship she had been searching for her entire life. Took long enough. I know. Well, their relationship lasted 15 years until um, 1865 when he died of tuberculosis. Um, mm. but, and then she never really looked for any any love after that. That's shocking because she had so much love. I know she had a, she had a lot of love that she was giving quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> but she spent her remaining years um, basically doting on her grandchildren um, that were from her son. She and uh, her daughter Solange had a pretty tough um, and strange relationship most of the time until the end. In 1876, she began to suffer from um, stomach pain that she kept to herself. She didn't tell anybody that she was having these problems. Um, on June 3rd, 1876, she invited her whole family, including her daughter, to Nohant. And five days later, on June 8th, she ended up dying at 10 a.m. in the chateau. And how old was she? She was um, 71. Oh, she lived a long time. Yeah, she lived a long, pretty much a long time for then. But she was the first woman ever to be able to live off of her writing. The first woman in history. Yeah. She was the first woman to basically be, you know, completely financially set, just being able to live off of her writing. Oh, I admire you, George. Son. I know. <laughs> I, I was just like, yeah, we love her. <laughs> but today, um, you know, you could go to the, like we mentioned, um, the Musée de la Vie uh, Romantique, which um, is, was the home of Ari Sheffer, who was a artist, but it's kind of turned into kind of a makeshift George Sand uh, little museum as well inside the house. There's quite a few things in there. I think there's even like a cast of her hand, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of casts of her hand and Chopin's hand yeah. and paintings of her children and her. And yeah, there's a lot of George Sand. Yeah. And Delacroix at one point painted because um, he was friends with Chopin um, before she met him. And Delacroix actually painted a painting of the two of them and later cut it in half. <laughs> he separated them in the pa- paintings, too. <laughs> hilarious so much drama oh i would love to watch the reality show of that time period <laughs> i know wouldn't it be good especially like 
I mean, a reality show at that period without social media and everything it would be like so interesting. Like something would happen that would take two weeks for somebody to find out. <laughs> I love it. Desperate courtesans of France. There you go. <laughs> the courtesan would be awesome. Yeah, that would be. I'm waiting to watch that one. That would be really good. Let's let's get that started. <laughs> Well, thank you, Claudine, for another fascinating woman in French history. And I hope you guys will tune in next week. Thank you for listening to Paris History Avec A. Hemingway. If you want to find out some more, you could always find me on my Instagram page, Claudine Bleu Blanc Rouge, and that's B-L-E-U, as in the French way to spell it. And each day I post a daily history lesson about a person or a place or something in Paris or it's lots of fun facts and then also at claudinehemingway.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter there